This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear Ken Sandy consider how to prevent and resolve conflict in the church. Ken Sandy is founder of Relational Wisdom 360. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2021 General Assembly. Let's listen as Ken Sandy considers how to prevent and resolve conflict in the church. Well, good afternoon. My name is Ken Sandy. I work with a ministry called RW360. Uh, you may know me more closely associated with a ministry called Peacemaker Ministries, where I spent 30 years of my life. And the basic story behind the transition is that after 30 years of putting out the fires of conflict, I thought, I think I'd rather spend my time preventing conflict. And so as we developed this new ministry called Relational Wisdom 360, or RW360, our focus now is we still do a lot of training on peacemaking, conciliation, all of that is still very much in place. But we've added the component of how do we help people get upstream of conflict? Um, In so many of the mediations that that I worked on over the years, part of the process was having people tell their story. How do they get into this church split, lawsuit, divorce, whatever their conflict was? And in essence, we sort of backed the tape up and then played it forward. And again and again and again, as we heard their story, we realized they came to a fork in the road. And instead of going to the right, they went to the left, and that's why they're now faced with a divorce or a church split or a lawsuit. Just so many cases, there were obvious relational errors that were obvious in retrospect, but at the time, people just didn't realize the effect that their behavior was having on other folks. So that's why we're we're focusing now on relational wisdom, and in particular, uh, a focus, a part of that that was not a high emphasis when I was working at peacemaking is just the whole concept of emotions. And emotions play a huge role in our relationships and in our conflicts. And yet for many Christians, emotions are just, they think of them like the tail on the dog. If we just teach good doctrine, preach good theology, then everything else will fall in line. But if we're not consciously aware of how God designed emotions, what their purpose is, basically emotions are designed to move us. The word emotion actually literally comes from the word to move. And so our emotions do move us, and they can move us either in constructive directions or in very hurtful and and destructive directions. So that's a big part of what we're working on as well, taking some of the good research that's coming out 
these days on a concept called emotional intelligence, but casting it in a solid systematic theology where we're looking at emotions and relationships and conflict through a context of the, the scriptures, particularly bringing the gospel into it. What I want to do in this workshop today is to introduce you just very briefly to the concept of relational wisdom. I want to talk about a few key relational principles, just to share with you a lot of things I've been counseling churches on for the past 16 months uh, because of all the uh, turmoil that has come up in our country over the COVID, the masking, uh, political issues, the racial issues have come up. It's just been an incredibly tumultuous time. And I want to talk about some of those basic conflicts and principles that I've been coaching pastors on, and then talk about what can you do going forward to prevent conflict. A lot of the conflicts we face in the church, if we were thinking a little bit more clearly, a little bit more biblically, understanding people a little bit better, we could avoid many of those things. So I'm going to share a few key principles today on that. And then especially, I want to introduce you to a concept called Peace Sower Teams, and you can think of a peace sower team as a volunteer fire department in a small rural town. You can either hire some people professionally. In a big city, you hire professional firefighters. You've got the money to do it. But in many churches, you can't hire professionals just to deal with relationships and conflict. That's just one of the duties that is stacked on top of the pastoral staff and the elders. And I'd like to introduce you to a way that you could find gifted people in your church who can be trained and be available as volunteers to save the leaders of the church an enormous amount of time and actually bring a lot more peace and reconciliation to your body. As I said a minute ago, the last year to year and a half has been a time of incredible turmoil. Uh, I'm an elder in my church, and I spent, I estimate, 200 hours at least in the last year as a lay elder just dealing with conflict, talking to people who are upset, um, and I've talked to hundreds of pastors around the country over the last uh, year and a half who are just inundated and not only dealing with issues out there, but so many of those issues turned into personal attacks on the pastor. They were caught in between these factions that had very strong views. Do we mask? Do we not mask? Do we socially distance? Do we open the church? Do we teach these, these principles on racial reconciliation? Do we not? And if the pastor didn't enter in and side with one of those groups, suddenly he's the bad guy. And he's, the, the amount of time the pastor has been spending defending themselves from personal attack, in my experience, is unprecedented. And it's really been a challenging time. The thing I, I'd like to point out right at the beginning is that all that turmoil certainly creates danger. And I've talked to, to men who've left the pastor over the last year. They just couldn't take that much controversy and personal attack. So there's a lot of danger. There's some churches that have literally split over these issues. There's some relationships even with families that have broken. Uh, one lady called me and said that her daughter living in Oregon told the mother, who was politically conservative, the daughter was politically liberal, the daughter told her mother that the mother was not welcome in the state of Oregon. It wasn't just you can't come to our house and see your grandkids. You're not to come into our state. That's how polarized and tense this has been. But any time that there is turmoil, which has potential to create danger, there's also a tremendous opportunity to grow, to learn, to minister, to love, to model the power of the gospel. And that's what I want to talk about today is some of these opportunities. So what I want to do now is lay out just some basic wisdom principles that you could find 
that could be relevant in a lot of the situations you face personally, in your family, in your church, with your friends. And it's basically ways that you can sow seeds of peace in your life, in your circle of influence, to produce a harvest of righteousness and solid, durable relationships. This passage, James 3.18, we'll come back to it in a few minutes more in depth, but peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. It's a constant biblical theme of sowing and reaping. You do something today that may not produce an immediate benefit, but over time, that sowing is if it's nurtured and reinforced and strengthened, eventually returns to us. And so part of the concept is we develop these relational skills over a period of time. We may not see a lot of fruit coming from them, but later on in life, a crisis may come up and we are in a better position to deal with that conflict. First thing I want to just briefly introduce you to is this concept of relational wisdom. We do a whole uh, eight-hour seminar on this. There's an online course I'm going to give you a free pass to by the end of the seminar. Um, But it's basically relational wisdom is a God-centered, biblically grounded, gospel-driven form of emotional intelligence. Or another way we put it is RW is going beyond emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence is a very popular concept in our culture today. Corporations are spending billions of dollars teaching EI because they found it produces measurable financial return. In fact, in the corporate world, they're finding when a corporation teaches these kinds of skills to their staff, the return on every dollar spent is between $1.50 and $6.85. Now, show me where I can get a 600% return on my money, and I'll put my money into it. And that's what corporations are doing, and that's secular EI. How do we learn to read and manage our emotions? How do we learn to read and respond appropriately to the emotions of others? What we've done, though, the the bottom two-thirds of that diagram is basically secular emotional intelligence. Self-awareness, what's going on in me, how do I manage that? Other awareness, what's going on in you, how do I respond constructively? That's classic emotional intelligence. What we've done is added that top portion, which is pretty significant, because classic EI does not have a moral compass. In fact, a lot of people that develop better emotional intelligence can actually use those skills to manipulate other people. You become highly empathetic, you can read people, you can use that to your advantage and to their hurt. So as Christians, we should be doing everything under the Lordship of Christ, trying to think, you know, who is God? What is he like? What are his purposes? What's he doing in my life? How do I respond to him? Faith, trust, belief, worship, uh, spread his name. And the reason our ministry is called Relational Wisdom 360 is because not only do we talk about going around that whole circle and those, those skills actually reinforce each other, the better we get at any one of those skills, it overflows to the other skills. But the other thing is there's, there's countless 360 passages in the Bible itself. And you see one up on the screen right now, Ephesians 4.30. They start with a focus on God. In this case, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. That's a hyperlink to the gospel itself. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for our sins, and he sealed us in our salvation through the Holy Spirit. It then goes on into focusing on what's going on inside of me. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So that's where I look at my heart. Man, I'm feeling bitter. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling some malice toward this person. 
And so I, I begin to read those motives in my heart. I'm not letting them just control me, and I don't go into autopilot being just guided by my emotions. But as the Bible says, I need to put those away. I need to control those, take, take them captive to Christ. And then the focus shifts to the other person. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. That means you look at someone, you see what they're struggling with, how they're hurting, how they're, how they're struggling, and, and forgiving them, one another, as God in Christ forgave you, a complete 360. And you'll find those passages all over the Bible. The red portions of that, they're, they're like bookends. Theologians call them the indicative passages. They talk about who God is, what he's like. They're the motivational passages. If we understand who God is and what he's like and what he's done for us, we are highly motivated. Apart from understanding the gospel, the passage where Jesus says, love your enemies, seems completely impossible. But when you understand that while we were yet sinners, rebels against God, Jesus came into the world to die for us, and then he commands us, love your enemies, we go, that's hard, God, but you did it for me. And by your grace, if you will work in me, I want to imitate you. So our ministry right now is focusing primarily on helping people develop those skills, being more God-aware, God-engaging, more self-aware, reading our own hearts, our own motives, our own idols, what's going on in me, and, and more better self-discipline, taking every thought, emotion, word, and action captive to Christ, the self-discipline that God commends in his word. Other awareness is empathy, compassion, reading the other person, understanding them better. And then other engagement is basically service. Whoever would be great among you would serve, be the servant to everyone else. So that we've got a whole set of uh, resources developed where you can teach these concepts in your church, small group studies, Sunday school classes, etc. And I'm going to give you access to the online course, each one of you here uh, at the end of the seminar. Just a few basic principles that flow from that. These are just some wisdom principles that I often counsel uh, church leaders on when they're in the middle of a conflict. And one of these is, I just mentioned a little while ago, the golden result. People will generally treat you the way you treat others. And it's not, a, it's not an iron cast rule. It won't happen all the time. But more often than not, if you are in a relationship that has some kind of conflict and your focus is blaming the other person, nine times out of 10, they're going to blame right back at you. But if you go into it saying, you know, I'm sorry, I should not have you know, raised my voice to you the other day when I was speaking to you. I'm sure that upset you. And then they say, well, listen, I know you were having a hard day. And besides, if I'd gotten the project done on time, I wouldn't have done. It's a whole different dynamic when, when we start and we confess our sins. And this is the brilliance of one of the most simple but powerful peacemaking principles in God's word is Matthew 7. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll be, see clearly to help the other person take the speck out of his eye. We, we read through that and just treat it as sort of a, you know, just a simple little Bible verse. It is so powerful. The, the largest case award that I was ever involved in as a media, it was a $200 million clergy malpractice and negligence case out in California, where a pastor counseling a married couple Somehow in that process, to this day, we don't know for sure how it came about, but the end result of the marriage counseling was the reason they were so stressed out, they already had two kids, they had a new baby, and this new baby was stressing them out, so you really ought to put your baby up for adoption. And by the way, my son and his wife can't have children, they're really nice people, so why don't you adopt your baby to my son and his wife? Which they did. And then they changed their mind and came back and said, we, we think that was not wise. We want our kid back. And the pastor says, 
you're a Christian, your yes needs to be yes. And then the denomination moved the young couple, who was also a pastor in the denomination, to another undisclosed location. So now there's a denominational conspiracy, and then the couple finally ran into an attorney who'd been excommunicated from the denomination who was all too happy to file a $200 million clergy malpractice case. It went on for four years, litigation, involved hiring a private detective who located the child in North Dakota, kidnapped the child, high-speed chase across gravel. I mean, this could be made into a movie, okay? Finally, it gets into conciliation. I'm sitting in a, a church in Sacramento with two other conciliators going, what am I doing here? <laughs> it was so far above my head. It was so far above my head. God loves to put us in impossible situations. And for three days, with like six attorneys in the room and two, four, about eight parties, $200 million at stake, people blaming each other, accusing each other, it's your fault, your fault, your fault. And on the third day, we did a lot of caucusing with the parties, talking to them personally, sharing and praying about certain scriptures. And I wish I could tell you, in fact, this is on our website. Just go and look for $200 million uh, case. You'll find it. But uh, to cut it short, we came into this last meeting, and the husband, the, the birth father, stood up and said, and he'd been attacking and blaming and accusing and suing for four years, and he stood up in this meeting and said, this is all my fault. This is all my fault. If I had been the husband that God calls me to be years ago, we wouldn't be here today. And my failure to love my wife and care for her and support her was the major contributor to the stress in our marriage that even took us where we were. And I was foolish and unwise and desperate to go along with the situation in the first place. And he just poured his heart out in the most amazing confession and said that he and his wife had decided to drop the lawsuit against the denomination and said, we're going to just trust you to do whatever you think is appropriate. And I mean, the room was in shock. And at that point, the pastor who had arranged the adoption got up from his table, walked around, got down on his knees in front of this young couple. And the pastor's attorney freaked out. <laughs> you're being sued for $200 million, you don't want your client getting on his knees in front of the claimant. <laughs> and I said, stay there. God is moving. And the pastor just began to confess his sins. And by that time, he, he, he sincerely believed it was not his idea, that it was the couple's idea, and he, he, it wasn't his initiative. But he said, even, even if it wasn't, I never should have gone along with it. I failed you as your shepherd. I, I was guided by a selfish attitude to have my son have a child. I was so wrong. I was so bad. And with tears, he just poured his heart out. The denominational president got up from his room. I mean, this is completely out of control from the conciliators. It's like a roller coaster. You're just along for the ride. And he comes over. He gets down on his knees and confesses. And about that time, everybody in the room was in tears. And I called a break, walked out in the hallway. There was a, one of the attorneys who was not a Christian representing one of the defendants and had a pretty low opinion of Christians based on what he learned in this case so far. He was standing there looking out the window, and I saw that he was trembling. I walked up and looked at him, and there was tears streaming down his face. I said, Bruce, are you okay? He said, what is going on in that room? There's a power in that room I can feel. What is it? And I love that question. I actually prefer having non-Christian attorneys in my mediations to Christian attorneys because the Christians already know Jesus. 
the non-Christian attorneys need to meet Jesus. And I shared that with, with Bruce. And it was all resolved in such an amazing, amazing way. But it was one of the most vivid illustrations I've ever seen that other people will usually treat us the way we treat them. And I'll tell you, this is especially true in your marriage. That's where I've learned it the most. So a very simple principle. The more you can teach, you know, right now there's this concept of herd immunity. If a certain percentage of Americans get vaccinated from COVID, then it just really, they act as a buffer basically. So the disease doesn't spread as much, there's a theory. I would submit to you that same concept can apply to a church. If you can teach a certain percentage of the members of your church to really become godly peacemakers, people with a high level of relational wisdom, they're the ones that even if someone's obnoxious or gossipy or whatever, and they bump into one of these godly relational people, they immediately start putting it in a different direction. They're going to guide them onto a safer road. So that's just one simple concept. In fact, you can access that story. As I, I believe that I use that, that illustration. There's a live link to that story if you go to that URL I gave you. Another, another basic principle on dealing with conflict is bring the gospel into every situation. And it is amazing to me how often we as Christians, even in the PCA, Reformed denomination with solid theology, we get into conflict and we just get very horizontal. We, we grab a hold of God's word to be sure, and, and this passage proves where I'm right, and this passage over here proves where you're wrong. And I, I was involved in a mediation a while ago, flying down to Florida, a pastor got sideways with his church, with his elders, they were divided on some issues. I was going through all these emails and letters they'd sent out to each other and the congregation over the preceding year, about 90 pages of, of documents, communications, and they had probably about five biblical citations per page. On, on average, these people knew the Bible really well. And I was about six pages into it, and I, I, it suddenly struck me that every Bible citation I'd read so far was law. This passage shows where I'm right. I've lived up to God's law, and this passage shows where you're wrong. You failed to live up to God's law. And it, it just struck me. There's no gospel here. And I just started thumbing through page after page. Couldn't find one reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ or to the implications of the gospel for that situation. And when I got down the next day, I was working with the Pat with these elders, and I let them talk for about an hour, and I finally just said, I want to ask you a question. Imagine we could re rewind the, the videotape of this whole conflict back to zero and just change one historical fact. Let's just assume that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. Let's change that one historical fact and then hit play and then go ahead with the conflict, exactly the conflict. What would be different? And they looked at me like, you know, I thought this guy is biblical. I mean, what's he talking? That's a stupid question. I just sat there, didn't say anything, and at first they thought I was just weird. And then finally, one of the elders just says, oh, dear God, nothing would be different. We have completely forgotten the gospel. And we spent the next two hours talking about what are the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ as you work through these doctrinal and relational issues. What are the implications? And it's certainly not because of the gospel, we hold hands, sing kumbaya, and just walk away and pretend like we're all getting along. No, the gospel, if nothing else, says sin is so serious that Jesus Christ had to die to pay the price. 
So the sins that have been taking place in everybody's heart over the past year were very serious. They had to be named, they had to be confessed, they had to be repented of, starting with each individual in that room getting the log out of his own eye. So it wasn't covering over sin, it was bringing the light of God's word onto those sins in a way there could be confession, repentance, and forgiveness. So always bring the gospel in. Another principle is to guard against amygdala hijacking. And amygdala hijacking is it's a, neuro, a neurological concept, but it's, it's very well described. There's many examples in the Bible where you have some strong emotions the trigger an impulsive reaction and that is quickly regretted. You want an example? Think of a parent with young children. <laughs> They often do things that provoke just a, you know, a harsh reaction, sharp words, things like that, uh, inappropriate discipline. I, I look back on times where I spoke to my kids way too harshly when they did something that just really irritated me or aggravated me. Um, if you want an example out of the Bible, one of the most vivid examples of amygdala hijack, and there's a whole neurological process that goes on here. It's very fascinating. Your, your amygdala is like your experiential, uh, emotional storage cabinet, if you will. And when you have an experience that is similar to something in that storage cabinet, it can trigger something, just a very quick emotional reaction, that if you had thought about it for six seconds, you wouldn't have done it, but because you reacted too quickly. Good example is Peter, the night Jesus was betrayed. He's in the courtyard. Say, so you're, you're with this Jesus guy, aren't you? No, no, I, no, I don't know him. No, I, I, think, I think I saw you with him. Uh, uh, no, I don't know him. No, I think I saw him. No, I don't know him. He went out in the courtyard, out of the courtyard, and what did he do? He wept. The whole incident probably took place in a minute or so. But it's a perfect example of the strong emotion of fear drove an impulsive reaction that he profoundly regretted. And there's a, there's a way to overcome that. One of the concepts we teach in relational wisdom, if you know anything about my writing in The Peacemaker, you know I love acrostics. My dear friend David Paulison said, I never met a concept I couldn't turn into an acrostic. I said, yeah, Dave, you met, never met a nuance you didn't like. So, boy, I miss Dave. I miss him. He went to be with the Lord. Uh, anyway, read. is This is a very simple concept to, to learn and to practice. And it's like riding a bicycle. You know, when you start riding a bicycle, you're totally focused. It's an unnatural thing. You have to really concentrate on it. You say, don't, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. I'm just concentrating. But after you do it over and over and over again, I see, I see young people driving, riding their bicycle. They're not even holding the handlebars. They're, they're texting on their phone. They become so automatic in terms of how they can balance that bike and turn it. If you practice, and our, our general advice is when you go through our training is take one of these concepts Practice it daily for 21 days. That's about how long it takes to start forming a new habit. And it starts to work its way in where it's not, not always just a conscious thing. It gets to be more and more subconscious. And so read is you recognize and name the emotion. You're in a situation. You're having a conversation with your spouse, for example, like the case we had a minute ago. And your, your spouse is saying something, and you start to recognize, I'm, I'm feeling anger. You know, my... My wife doesn't even care about my getting rest. All she wants is her dad, but I'm feeling anger. My body is tightening up. I can feel my muscles tighten up. My blood is starting to, my heart's pounding. And when I start feeling anger, 
anticipate is, what do I do? If I give in to this anger, I'm going to say things that are going to make this worse. Evaluate is evaluate, why do I feel this way? And this is where you bring in the concept like James 4.1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. And that, those film clips we saw a minute ago are a good example of people wanting good things. Wanting to see dad when he's not feeling well, he may not be here for a long time, that's a good thing. Wanting to have rest and relaxation with the family at the beach, that's a good thing. But good goods can become bad gods. And they go through a process we call the progression of an idol. A desire turns into a demand, we start to judge people, and then we begin to punish them. And so learning how to avoid that. So this whole process of recognizing, evaluating, anticipating, and directing. There's a number of other principles in, on this uh, URL that you can go to. I'm just going to touch on them briefly, and, and then you can uh, look them up. But building a passport is a huge part of what I do as a conciliator, as an elder, as a father, as a grandfather, as basically is how do I earn the right to enter into the personal lives, the struggles, to basically have the fine china of other people's lives. And there's three questions people generally ask. I'm sorry, the power of the screen isn't working very well here. But basically, when people are trying to decide, am I going to open up and share something really difficult, really personal with you, they're in, in the back of their mind, they're saying, can I trust you? Not only to keep confidences, can I trust you not to judge me or think less of me if I share something really, really messy with you? There's a lot of people that don't go to their pastors because they're too ashamed of their sin. And they're afraid if they confess something, the pastor will just lose respect for them. So can I trust you that I can lay out the most egregious things and you will still minister to me as a brother in Christ? Do you really care about me? Is this just doing your job or do you really love me? Are you willing to walk with me through this? And the final thing you can't see there is, can you actually help me? If I come to you with difficulty in my marriage or in the workplace or issues within the church, can you actually give me advice that would actually help me? So those are principles you can learn as a leader uh, doing ministry in a church. A very similar concept is something we call uh, the three P's of satisfaction. It's something we teach a lot in our mediation training, that when you're asked by somebody to help resolve a conflict, and this could be people arguing over a landscaping job on your, on your church property. It could be talking to people about, are we going to wear masks? Are we socially distanced? Are we going to reopen? Are we going to require a vaccine? I mean, you name the issue. When you're working through that, there's three things you want to give people. Process satisfaction, that there's a fair, reasonable process where everybody feels they had a reasonable opportunity to present their concerns. Secondly is personal satisfaction. People are treated with respect and courtesy no matter what position they have. And third is product satisfaction, the end result. And what I've seen again and again over the years is that you're often constrained about the, about the result of a mediation or problem-solving process. You just may not even have any other options than there's just one that you really basically have to take because of law or constraints or money or budget or theology or whatever. But if you give people process satisfaction and personal satisfaction, treat them with respect, give a fair process again and again and again, even if they don't agree with the outcome, they can say, you know, it's not the outcome I wanted, but I was treated fairly or respectfully, and I'll get behind it. And there's a story attached to that particular principle about a, a lawsuit. It was an oil and gas case down in Houston or in Texas, and one of the attorneys lost the case, zero product satisfaction, lost a $2 million contingency fee. She had a 25% contingency fee in the case, and 
25% of zero is zero. So she invested a year of her life, missed the big fee. She ended up giving our conciliation process one of the best endorsements I've ever had. I called her up. I said, I, you lost the case, didn't you? She said, oh, yeah, you know, but I've been around. You'll win a few, you'll lose a few, but I love your pro." She wasn't even a Christian. But she said, I like the fact you opened with prayer. It kept everybody reasonable. We had some delays to get more evidence. She had a good, competent panel. Totally like your process. It's better than the AAA. In fact, I just recommended another attorney use it. Zero product satisfaction. Incredible process and product satisfaction. So it's a very valuable skill as a church leader. When our church used to be in Billings, the PCA church used to be in the OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we made the transition to the PCA. We did it over six years. We lived out that process very carefully. We lost four people. And some of the people that went didn't agree with the result. They wanted to stay in the OPC, as you can imagine. They were loyal to that original church. But because the process was handled so carefully, so thoughtfully, took our time, we listened to people, um, they said, okay, I would have stayed in the OPC, but I'm with you still. So there's a lot of these issues you can resolve effectively. Here's another concept, and again, this is detailed on that, uh, through that link. But when you're dealing with a controversial issue, let's say you're going to have a congregational meeting and talk about uh, are we going to teach some you know, certain things on racial issues or um, the political issues or mask, whatever the controversy is that's going on. And when people show up at a meeting like that, they usually come in loaded for bear. They come in, they plan exactly what they're going to say, and they're going to stand up, and they're going to have their controversial statement they're going to throw out there. And this is generally very polemical, very adversarial. We went through this in our church but when thinking of changing a Sunday school curriculum. And there was people who felt very strongly about two competing views. But what you can do is you can channel that energy, basically filter that energy by saying, hey, we're all going to have a chance to talk tonight, whoever wants to share their view. But when you talk, you need to go through six specific steps. We're going to talk about the new Sunday school curriculum, whether we're going to adopt this one or this one. Okay, you define the issue. And then you say, when you get up there, I want you to say how you feel about this issue. Let's get our feelings out in the open, not to be controlled by them, but let's be honest about what they are. What have you done that might have contributed to this situation? Matthew 7, get the log out of your own eye. What do you think would please God as you work through this situation? What steps have you already taken to make things better? What are you now willing to do to help resolve this situation? And finally, number six is what everybody came wanting to talk about in the first place, is what do you suggest others do? That's always our focus, what the other guy's doing wrong, what he needs to do differently. But if you make people go through this grid, it's basically a Matthew 7 process. You're helping them to think it through in a constructive way. Um, another thing that uh, you can make use of, this is the Peacemaker book, which is basically the systematic theology for our peacemaking. 4G's, we've just re-recorded a new seminar. It's, we're just doing the final editing. That's going to be up on our website soon. And the, um, the code I'm going to give you in a minute works, will work for that seminar. And if you're familiar with the, with the Peacemaker, you recognize some of these things. That's the progression idol I mentioned, how to make a good confession, 7A confession. These are just some of the key principles, key, key principles of forgiveness. We have whole chapters in there on these things. 
The negotiation process dovetails a lot with uh, the relational wisdom things, understanding the interests of others. So these are concepts you can teach to your people in a church, and as they develop these skills, when they talk about negotiation, they're thinking the same concepts, looking out for the interests of others. When they talk about forgiveness, they're thinking about making certain promises. When they think about confessing, getting the logs out of their eye, they're, they're on the same page. They're thinking the same thing. Um, so those are just concepts to teach. So how can you bring these into your church? Let me talk to you real quickly about some resources that are available to you. And this is the, this concept of peace sower teams that I'd like to encourage you to seriously think about developing in your church. And let me base this on just a very significant, I think very relevant passage of the Old Testament. Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt. They're in the desert. And every day he gets up, puts his chair out in front of the people and says, okay, bring me all your conflict. <laughs> and his, his father-in-law shows up and says, Moses, you're nuts. You're going to burn out. And here's what, what basically says. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. You are not able to do it alone. So I'll give you some advice, son. You shall warn the people about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they would walk. So it's the role of the teaching pastor in the church, teaching and proclaiming God's word. But, he says, moreover, Look for able men from all the people and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will, and they will bear the burden with you. So that's the whole concept here. So how do you identify people in your church to whom God has given gifts on relational skills and peacemaking, coaching, mediation, train those people, and they will be the ones, as Moses' father-in-law said, they can deal with the small disputes in groups of tens. And maybe there's some groups of 50, you know, a group over here. And it's basically an appellate system is what you're looking at, very similar to the United States court system. But it's the idea that there's people down there, I would say it's like small groups. Equip the leaders of your growth groups in your church to deal with some of these initial conflicts. And so if something comes up and a couple's got an issue, they'll ask to come early to growth group or meet with the couple beforehand, share their dispute. The growth group leader and his wife share some principles. It's all resolved. You never even hear about it. That's a happy ending. Um, the other concept we talked about is this concept of sowing. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So if you sow, if you invest in this training, equip your people, your job as a church leader can get easier and easier over the course of time. So here's some, some of the, the tools and concepts we're talking about here. This is our, our training resources. Uh, the green ones are available now. The other ones, the gray ones, are now in the pipeline. But basically, a peace sower team has some people trained as teachers and trainers. Years ago, D.L. Moody said, Christians leak. We're all like buckets with a hole in it. You can teach us good principles today, but we forget them you know, a few days or a few weeks or a few months later. So there has to be some effort to constantly be refreshing people's memory of, oh, yeah, I get the log out of my own eye. Oh, yeah, when I forgive, I forgive like Christ. So reminding people and also teaching new members that come into the church. So you've got a training and a teaching team. You've got coaches, and the coaches are comparable to a golf pro. You can improve your golf game by going out there every day all by yourself and just swinging and seeing what works better. But if you want to accelerate your growth, you spend a little bit of money, you hire a pro who watches you golf, 
watches your feet, watches your grip, watches your swing, makes a few suggestions, and bingo, you're way ahead in improving. And so an RW coach is someone who works with someone for like three months, focusing in on particular relational skills. You know, here's a man who's got anger issues. He just loses his, his temper real easily, says hurtful things to his wife and kids or to other people in church. Okay, how do we focus in on that? What are some practical ways to deal with that particular behavior and help that person accelerate growth in that relational area? The conciliator is the one who's trained as a mediator, basically, who can sit down with two people or two couples or a group of people who are having an issue and guide them through that process. Now, you as a church leader, as a pastor, as an elder, or as a, as a woman in the church in a leadership position, you could perform all sorts of those duties. Any one of you can do it, but the more you can delegate those things to other people in your church, the less they have to land in your study week after week after week. So here's some resources that you can use. And basically, 1 Timothy 4.15 is practice these things. Immerse yourselves in them so others would see uh, your progress. There's two, two uh, URLs you should write down, the one we did before, 20 ways, and then the one with the PST, that takes you to the page that describes PSOAR teams. You can download a free app, has all the concepts I just talked about right on your smartphone for free. Um, you can download, go to our free download section, there's a 70-page booklet on coaching and mediation and arbitration built around specific uh, conflict situations in churches. That's basically a summary of the things I learned at Peacemaker Ministries for 30 years. Basic principles on conflict coaching mediation that's there for free. Um, there's online training that's available. You can use it with the leaders in your church. If you want to go back and have your session go through it, your ladies' ministry go through it, then you can look at getting small group studies and start using this material to take your small groups through Sunday school class, weaving these things into your congregation. And the last thing I'll just mention, um, no, second to last, is we've developed a values-based form of this material that is suitable for secular settings. I go into corporations all the time, working in the military, military chaplains, police departments. All the basic concepts are there without the scripture passages around them. Uh, but it's, it's, it's basically designed to get us in the door in those secular settings, even public schools. But when you get in there, part of the concept is we talk about worldviews, how that affects our belief system, how that affects our values, and how that affects our behavior. And I'll always ask, is there anyone here who's had a major worldview change in their life? And someone always raises their hand and says, yeah, 10 years ago, my, wife was, my life was a mess, and then I met Jesus Christ. And they share the gospel. And it's basically, how do we get into the, those secular settings and find a way that we can start sharing the gospel? Last thing I'll say is just, um, if you want to really accelerate your growth, identify some gifted people in your church and consider coming up to Big Sky Country in September and have a team get trained in these concepts so you can actually build a team like that. So we'd love to see if there's Billings is my hometown. Uh, we're just about two hours from Yellowstone Park if you've never been to Yellowstone. So some good reasons to be up there. So thank you very much for being here. Appreciate it. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.